And welcome to G220 Radio. My name is Mike, and we have a special show for you today. It is called our Coffee Talk Roundtable. And I have a list of topics and a guest, and we'll bring him on now. This is, as you can see, Nate um, right. Welcome to the show, Nate. Is this your first time? Yes, it is. So welcome. Yeah. We're expecting a little bit more um, for whatever reason. Some had to drop out. Uh, Ricky isn't feeling good, so he's wasn't able to be part of it today. So it'll just be us two talking about different topics. I've kind of creatively named them on kind of how to discuss them, not necessarily um, what I believe or don't believe. I think we just lost Nate. And so, so very kind of, um, again, kind of with it. So bring Nate back on here. Um, so since this is coffee talk, Nate, do you drink coffee? I do. What would be, if we had this an actual coffee shop, what would be your drink of preference? Uh, well, I always drink my coffee black, uh, but I like to find the unique roasts. My favorite place to get coffee is Mugswigs. They're, they got a few locations scattered throughout the Akron Canton area and man, they do the best roasts and they got the experts who will tell you what uh, the flavor profile is. So, you know what, what to buy and yeah. Yeah. See, I usually will, I'd probably get a latte. I'd get a single origin. I have a couple places here in Louisville that I go to. Um, so whatever they have on is usually what I get. Um, Though my latte art is not very good, so probably why I do it just to appreciate latte art, because um, it's difficult. And so, with that, but since um, you're new to the show, give a couple minutes to just tell us your testimony and how you became a Christian, and then we'll start rattling off these topics. Okay. Well, I was raised in a Christian home. And my parents discovered Reformed theology when we were obliged to move churches. I was around 11. And uh, the, the church we were at was a lovely little church, uh, theologically hit or miss, but great place. And they were merging with a church that we knew was a little more on the worldly side. So we found Heritage Reformed Baptist Church in North Canton, Ohio. And we ended up moving out there. And my parents had no idea that this whole uh, world of reformed theology was about to open before them. And ever since then, I've noticed uh, them changing in the ways that they're raising my younger siblings and stuff. But for me, that was an interesting time in my life because I wasn't yet saved. I was, uh, I was, what does, what does Paul say? I was living in sin that grace may abound. You know, I knew there was a God and I, I knew that I was living in sin, but I didn't care. 
And when Reformed theology opened up before me, it forced me to actually take my faith seriously for the first time. I, I had questions about salvation. I had questions about election. And so th there were some direct ways and some indirect ways that Reformed theology showed me why I was a false convert and just generally made me study the word like genuinely for the first time and not because I was rolling with what I knew would make my parents happy. And so that is when I believe I was saved around the age of 12, I guess, about a year later after uh, taking God and his word seriously for the first time. And then ever since then, it's been a crazy roller coaster of sanctification. A few years back, I started doing street preaching and the book of Genesis is very, very important to me. I think it's a core part of the gospel, one that we cannot overlook. I think a lot of the deterioration of society around us is the direct result of removing Genesis from the gospel. And so that's kind of my uh, my passion. And I'm sure I'll, I'll revert to that quite a bit uh, throughout every conversation we have, because I always... I always do. I go back to God being the creator of all things. And that's the question to a lot of answers. I'm sorry. That's the answer to a lot of questions that people have. Why should I acknowledge God? Why should I care what God thinks of me? You know, you can talk about the love of Jesus Christ all day long, but if you don't establish God as the creator, then you have nothing. So that's, that's my passion in a nutshell and uh how i came to the faith and was there anything else um no that was it yeah i think it's important not just genesis um which is obviously you'd probably agree with me foundational to everything right. else but the entire old testament is, oh yeah you know just a place to uh, dig our teeth in as Christians to better understand the importance of the Messiah coming. Um, yeah. As my, my pastor says quite regularly, the old Testament is Christian, is Christian scriptures. And I think it's an important part to think about in this, um, in this day of age. Yeah. yeah. You really can't have a, I believe you can't have a, proper understanding of God's holiness unless you read the Levitical law. And it's just really humbling. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it, it's it's all important. But uh, the reason I say Genesis is so important is because it establishes that we're created beings and we're not our own and God created us. And without that, you know, you do have the, the question, okay, but so the gospel, but so what? You know? Yeah. Okay. So we will get into our topics and we have, I'm going to count here, keeps moving on me. One, two, three, four, five. We have seven topics um, from very not controversial with baby, baby dedication to maybe more conversation, more um, maybe with other people. Um, but women's preachers is another topic. Um, barring people from communion. Is that something we should or should not do? Um, are creeds important? We're kind of the best Bible translations. We're going to talk about maybe sign gifts and worship instruments. Instruments. Is that all of them? I think so. Or why are creeds important? I think I missed that one. Um, creeds, confessions, and 
catechisms are they important today or kind of the topics some of them more modern in discussion some of them aren't talked about but were talked about in church history so got a kind of a, a splattering of them so we can see our fancy little wheel here um got it so we'll do it Uh, so why are creeds important today and nate i'll let you start on this one. Oh well thank you uh something my dad told me once he worked with a guy who was a christian who went to this specific church that prided themselves on having no creeds and he said they're uh, they had like a little slogan I forget the first half of it, but it was like two brief phrases. And, and the last one was no creed, but Christ. And my dad told this guy, that's a creed right there. Cause you just made that up. And that, that's kind of something I always remembered. And over the years I have weighed the, the way that people receive creeds quite a bit. And I mean, I love the confessions and I love the catechisms. They helped me a lot growing up, especially like I mentioned when I was first learning reformed theology and my parents would take me through the catechisms. It answered a lot of my questions. Uh, but then, you know, I, I start to see as with any denomination there, there's a group of certain reformed people that can get a little bit arrogant about it and they can kind of idolize them, uh, which is really unfortunate because they're wonderful. Uh, so that for a while was kind of a concern and I was, I was almost a tad bit standoffish from, from the confessions just cause I didn't want to associate myself that way. But then as, as with a lot of issues like this, getting into street preaching really, uh, forced me to grapple with it afresh because if you're going to put yourself out there like that to, to be a representative of Christ and of the church, that's when always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you comes into play. And boy, I, <laughs> I have been hit with some crazy questions and you, you got to know these answers. The catechisms help us put things into words in ways we wouldn't otherwise be able to answer. We know the truths in our hearts. What is the chief end of man? Well, uh, it, you know, to, to, to like accept Jesus and um, I am, you know, just hopefully like go to heaven, like, Without the catechisms, we would be stumbling over our words when hit with sometimes even the most simple questions because we know these truths in our hearts. But how often are we forced to put them into words and to articulate them? And I'm really thankful that the catechisms can help us with that. And they're not just good for teaching children. They're good for ministry and they're good for adults to always have an answer like the Bible says. And then when it comes to the confessions, I mean, you know, are they are they inspired Words like the scriptures, no, they're not. But I think the, the Reformed folks who point out how much work was put into them absolutely have a point. And they're not inerrant or infallible, but we should be very, very thankful for them. And I, I think it's it goes back to what the scriptures say about having a cloud of witness, which I, I know that's not the context in which the verse was written, but the principle, I believe, absolutely applies because these were men who wrote these confessions under much more dire circumstances. You know, a lot of these guys were either facing oppression themselves or had come off the heels of an age where there was a lot of oppression. 
And, you know, nowadays, you know, the worst oppression a Calvinist might face is some guy calling him an idiot online. And so I think given all those factors, it's very important that we give the confessions our attention. And yes, we differentiate between the confessions and the scriptures, but we also realize that God has given us a very great privilege in having these men lay that groundwork for us to go off of. Yeah. Um, I was talking to my wife about this yesterday and an example she gave in her own um, teaching. So she was teaching, I want to say like first and second graders is who they're teaching. And our kindergarten pre-K teacher has taught them the boys and girls catechism. Very simple. We're teaching my kids this, you know, and she starts talking about, well, what are attributes? You know, obviously Mm. the kids have no idea what attributes are. What's the meaning of the word? Um, But you can show them. So we use it to describe things, you know, attributes have that kind of describing. And so she tells them, well, is God a man? And they're like, no. And there's the boys and girls, who is God? Um, God doesn't have a body. Uh, has, God is a spirit and does not have a body like man. There's the um, thing. And how you can stop. Well, okay, so how do we describe him? Well, the catechism helps them to kind of grasp the idea of, can God see you? No, but he... Can you see God? No, but he can always see me. And you have this now. Well, that's an attribute. That describes how God is. And again, just having that, as you said, that tool, it helps even adults teaching kids to rethink about what is going on and have better words to use, to have the grounded concepts and kind of the idea of, is it important today? Yeah, I think it is. Um, for the things we've mentioned, it's, these are tools that the church has given to us, even church doctrinal statements included in it for the purpose of teaching the people what they believe. Your creeds are a very focused statements. We see them early in the church and they help us to better understand theology. Your confessions are wider. They're a summary of the Bible systematically. You see, so you have your interpretation leads to this confession, which is essentially a micro um, systematic theology. And you look at the church today. I mean, you just, you see it. It's just, they don't care about theology. They don't think it's reverent. It has nothing to do with their lives. And I think that's what makes the creeds, confessions, and catechism so much more important because it helps us to theologically think through issues, both the new. So my church, we hold to the Baptist faith and message 2000, we're a Southern Baptist church, but our elders also have to hold to the 1689 second London Baptist confession of faith. And you need both. There are things that the Baptist catechism, the Baptist, um, the second London confession doesn't talk about like education and having kind of these 
other ideas helps us to think through the theology a little bit more and then gives us the language to talk about. Yeah. Um, you have anything else to say? How, how much time did, did you say you wanted to spend on each uh, topic? As, as long as we want to discuss it. I mean, there's could be tons to say, or we can just go to the next one. Uh, I was just thinking, I, I, I like what you said about how uh, churches don't care about theology. And that's, that's something that I've had to struggle with myself because this is, this just happens to be one of my personal struggles as a believer is you think of Mary and Martha and I am Martha all the way. I, I will work for the Lord. I will go out in freezing cold weather and street preach at abortion clinics. I do music and sound for my church. But when I come home and I try to pray, it's like it, it, I struggle sometimes. Like I, I just, I, I tend to prioritize working over the relationship and not, not, not in a workspace salvation way. I know I'm not earning my way to heaven, but that just tends to be like how I pursue sanctification. And it's probably because uh, OCD or whatever, whatever the, the psychology that I never pursued getting <laughs> a label for, but I like to stay active. That's me. And so I have to discipline myself like, okay, I have this urge to stay active. If that is going to possibly make my relationship with Jesus less than what it should be, then I need to fix that and I need to discipline myself. And so creeds, confessions, um, sermons, I, I go to sermon audio and I, I play sermons while I work. That's just, th these are all ways that I force myself to learn more about God. Uh, I, I study a lot of the practical applications of scripture because it's easy for me to understand those things. But when, it, when we get into the attributes of God, it's a little more difficult because God is so hard to understand and it's humbling how we as finite creatures can't fully comprehend him. But when you think about it, that's still practical application. So I guess as a word of encouragement for anyone who's like me, anyone who is eager to go out and do work for the Lord, but maybe in church, you have a hard time focusing. Don't tell yourself that learning the attributes of God is not practical application because it is practical application. What does the Bible say? Be holy as he is holy. Be imitators of Christ as beloved children and so many times in the scriptures, we're told to imitate God. And how are we supposed to imitate God if we don't know anything about him? Yeah. I think if he is important, attributes of God are important. Yeah. When you think about um, even kind of everyone's favorite um, um, verse for kind of like scripture, so 2 Timothy 3.16, we have that one pretty... We have it memorized. Right. Um, you know, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. And just kind of to note, it's all scripture. And there's yeah. a point to it in verse 17 that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And, you know, those times of reading and studying because I, I get you i have a similar mentality and we had to do um in my spiritual discipline class at southern 
we had to go and do like four hours of fasting and I would leave my house with like my Bible and just walk and read scripture and pray and work on memorizing and just kind of did this little walk for 20, 30 minutes or so concentrated on the scripture. And it was beneficial when you're going kind of this four hour stretch of kind of this devotion. Um, Mm-hmm. I realize it's part of class um, with it, but it was still beneficial to kind of get out to my in my community to pray and to pray for the people that I lived around and to think about scripture and to not be bogged down by the good books I was reading in classes, but to get to focus kind of devotional mm-hmm. with it. And, you then even then like with creeds and confessions to think about the topics um we are just in family de- our family devotions today um talking about the connection of or the importance of john 1 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us yeah and trying to explain it to my kids they have the nicene creed memorized we can say oh, this is where the nicene creed comes in and says he was incarnate by the Virgin Mary and became man. This is what we're celebrating in Christmas. This is the point of the celebration we're doing as we kind of prepare our hearts here in Advent for not only the celebration of his first return, but the anticipation of his second return. And to think through these ideas. So here we have, you know, our scripture memorization and now our creed are coming together and to think about, um, we haven't got that far in the boys and girls catechism with them, so we can't connect it there, but even that discussion. And so there's kind of living in this community of theology with the Bible, with your creeds, your confessions and good books and training our minds to think in that way is impactful and at the same time we can turn around and go to church and encourage one another in our studies in our reading as we hear our pastors preach messages on the gospel about who god is and all these other things again with this framework we're kind of building um with all of what the church has handed down from um, generation to generation. Mm-hmm. I think I think writing those things is honestly. I mean, it's not that much different uh, from what you and I are doing right now. I mean, the, the man who did it happened to be a lot smarter. But mm-hmm. you know, we're meant to study the Bible. We're meant to write about it. We're meant to talk about it. You know that it, it's it's our reflections on Scripture that show that we're passionate about it, as we should be. You know, I mean, you talk about the things that interest you and as believers you know the scriptures should be at the forefront of our minds and so i think i think people have the wrong impression of of creeds uh and it's not just reform folks there are plenty of folks i mean we, we see a lot of cults come from putting the creeds before the scriptures or putting a, a certain leader before the scriptures and so i think that can cause some people to throw the baby out with the bathwater. The the no creed but christ people as they would say it yeah um, I think if they're looked at rightly, then they're 
it's something that should encourage us that, you know, yes, the Bible tells us everything we need to be justified in, in one reading, but to be sanctified, you got to keep reading it and you got to keep studying it. And I love how God wrote it just that way so that it encourages us to continue pursuing him. Yeah. Like you mentioned, you think of Leviticus and the Levitical laws that you can't touch unclean people lest you become unclean. Yeah, here comes unclean people touching Christ and they're healed. Christ mm -hmm. doesn't become unclean. And we had my pastor on to talk about Leviticus and we discussed that a little bit. But just that idea to think about here's the one who didn't break the law and people came to him and was and they were made clean. They were and he would tell them, Go show yourself approved to the priest and you know when you you think about okay now how does that relate well only god can make someone clean so you see here again the importance of the creeds and seeing hey this here's the divinity of christ here's another way we can see what our creeds and confessions and catechisms have taught us in relation again like you said they're not superseding the scripture but the scripture shows when we study the scriptures it becomes evident in the creed of what the early church or even newer church believed about a subject and that's what's important it gives us that that body of language and it's always a good a good balance and a tool that I can evaluate my pastor with, you know, mm, not yeah. wrongly. Um, but there's a call to kind of discern what the pastor yeah. is preaching and the catechisms and creeds and stuff like that. Now give me the rubric in which is he being faithful to what the church has taught um, from the beginning from the apostolic tradition um, and kind of using it in the right way um, that has grown through time as Christians continue to think about and build upon the ones who came before them. So you have anything else to say? You want to go to a new topic? So. Okay. So here we go, our little wheel. I really want to do the communion one, but we're going to talk about the best Bible translations. <laughs> now this can be kind of subjective. Um, so, uh, you know, not to... Um, you know, I guess why you think the translation you have, um, jokingly, since the NASB 2020 has come out, um, on the show, I'll mention nothing but NASB kind of the, as a joke, um, I actually don't use the NASB. Um, I haven't, um, not that I don't appreciate it, but I, I like the ESV, um, there's a lot of reasons why 
um, a joy. I think one thing is the tradition that it comes with. It comes down through the King James tradition. So King James um, was retranslated in 1902 by the American Standard Bible, which will which was revised into the NASB in 85 and then or 95 and then the 2020 version. Um, the RSV, which tends to be a little bit more liberal in its translations, um, but part of the tradition. And then you have kind of the retranslation with the ESV continuing that same mentality as the King James translator with the modern trying to balance between biblical faithfulness and kind of the, the beauty of writing, having something that's just not so rigid, which I think the NASB, I tend to think in NASB of that way, where you still have kind of the expression of scripture, the beauty of scripture and language, which God has given to us, as we talked about last week on the Tower of Babel. But just kind of having that, that language without sacrificing the importance of a translation that accurately reflects what the original languages say. Um, and there's just that, that strike, that balance that I don't think translations, n new translations that are from scratch um, really play. The NIV maybe a little bit too much as not as much rigid with its um, how it's carry over from the Greek and Hebrew to the English. And then, as I mentioned, the NASB um, just being too, too literal, which can um, hurt the reading in which words may be used in a different way, but they translate, especially like and and is used in different ways and to communicate different things, not only just to be a connector, but how it's used with other words. And when you just repeat the same word and, and, and you lose kind of that, um, that understanding and trying to bring that across in, in the translation. And so this gets a little bit into like philosophy translation too, and, and how you think about it with it. So what's your favorite kind of translation or best translation? I, I like the ESV personally. Um, th this isn't an issue I have a particularly strong opinion on. Uh, I've seen, seen it cause a lot of division. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I have like a, like a few that, uh, I like to hear from. So if you, if, if, if I'm out preaching with you and you preach from KJV and KJV NASB, we're probably good. If you preach from NIV, you know, maybe an initial red flag, if it's an earlier one, if it's one of these, are, are they, are they, aren't they doing like the general gender neutral pronouns for God now or something? Um, it depends who you talk to. I haven't come across that. I think the, um, what it, it was the, uh, NIV 11, is that right? Yeah. Um, from my understanding, it was they were taking words that were masculine. So you have like anthropos, which is kind of man or mankind, and changing it to humanity, kind of taking that genderness out right. of it. 
Yeah. Um, I think some people have claimed that they've taken, like they try to make Jesus or God non-gender. Um, for my readings, the readings I've had in it, um, I've never seen it. So I don't have any evidence for it. But they did kind of have words that kind of meant more than just kind of man. Right. Like kind of gender. They did it. Um, this came... Um, this came out a little bit when I was at um, my undergrad. I got to listen to Douglas Moo, who is one of the translators, the general, I think he's the general editor of the NIV, um, and Wayne Grudem, who's the general editor of the ESV, and Ray Clinton, who is the uh, general editor of, um, was the Holman Christian Standard, now just a Christian Standard. And that was the big discussion. And. Um, I guess I wouldn't be opposed to NIV. That's probably like the farthest I would go. Cause when you start right. into like new living translation and the message, um, though I think they can be helpful at times, they shouldn't be the main diet of, of a Christian. I do think the NLT is kind of helpful and, explaining sometimes some of the bigger words um but I, I also think at times it uh reduces some pointed language yeah. and it and it's uh, that's again a hard balance as one who's had to try to translate that's a hard balance um to bring across what the text is saying and be faithful to it um in a language, in a language. that you can't always that don't always go one-to-one. -one. Yeah. I'm glad you clarified that about NIV. It sounds like uh, I probably heard some exaggerated things, uh, but you know, the principle of the thing, that, that, that's why, that's why I don't like hearing about all these new NIV, NIV versions, I guess is uh, a pleonasm, but uh, all these versions of the new international version that keep coming out, I don't like it mm -hmm. because I see the direction it's going. That's why it's a red flag. Yeah, I'm not going to call it the non-inspired version uh, <laughs> or judge people who use it, but I, I, I tend to, I tend to kind of walk the other way. Um, when it comes to this, is the only part I do have a strong opinion on. Uh, funnily enough, the the message in the Living Bible, I really have a strong aversion to because when I was a kid, uh, I had this handwriting book for school. I was homeschooled. And, uh, I guess, I, I guess my mom bought it. She never used the living Bible. I don't know if she didn't realize when she bought it or what, but it was just a bunch of scripture verses for me to write out, but it used the living Bible. And the verse where it says, uh, with whatever measure you judge, it will be measured back to you. The living Bible just says others will treat you as you treat them. And I remember writing this, I'm, I'm like a little kid, probably 10 years old maybe maybe younger and i'm writing this out and i'm like this, i know this isn't true so i go to mom what does this mean what well, how how am i how is this in the bible when it's demonstrably false and she's like oh yeah that's the living bible so we don't want to actually use this translation <laughs> and <laughs> so i just i just remember being and i i wasn't saved at the time but i i just remember being a kid and thinking this doesn't make sense because it's misrepresenting scripture and so I've heard all the arguments for, well, it's just a paraphrase. And I'm saying, well, 
that's look, look at the effect that had on me as a kid. So am I going to say there's no place for it? No, but I think I would rather err on the side of just not using it. Yeah. I would, I'd agree with you. I think there's, um, there's a lot of like what, what this means is and how they're, how they're discussing it. It's just kind of like, I almost have to talk, um, like interpret it to bring it into like a proper context. Well, but that verse wasn't, that's not what that word, <laughs> yeah. that verse means. It was, the, it was the wrong interpretation of it. I know that's one solitary verse, but it's just funny that even if, you know, even if you don't take the, the living Bible's interpretation of that, literally, it's still, uh, it's still missing the point. <laughs> yeah. So, and it's, um, and this isn't to say, um, so we have a comment, um, from a Catherine Miller, um, anyone else get nostalgic? Anyone else get nostalgic for the KJV during Advent? show here um i think yeah there's uh when you think about kind of when people use scripture they use the kjv and it makes sense not to say they're cheapstakes but it's open source like you don't have to pay royalties to use it you can't don't have to pay crossway if you use the esv or um the the lockheed foundation for the NASB, you know, you can use it. So there is this kind of, um, not only the rich language it uses in the time, um, just even just, you know, have, um, you know, the, the fact that you can use it for free. So. I like the KJV. I mean, it's, it's the easiest audio Bible to access for free for the same yeah. reason you just mentioned. And, you know, you learn stuff, you learn new words. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, it, there, there's definitely a point to be made about the, the perspective that it grants. And I remember debating this KJV only guy. He was the kind of guy who would like his banner page on Facebook would be, uh, like one of those slideshows from a fundamentalist, conference sometime in Pensacola, Florida in the nineties with the really lame graphic design <laughs> and everything. Yeah. He was one of those KJV only but he argued that uh, there are certain words the KJV uses that are more powerful. So like if you, if you look at what the word says in the Greek and it can maybe be one word or another word translated into English, the people who wrote the KJV would look, okay, well, where else has this word been used in the Bible and what word made sense in that context? And they'll apply it the same way. And, you know, of course, of course, this guy as an extremist was arguing that that, you know, that is what makes the KJV the only reliable translation. And obviously I think that's taking it too far, but I think that there initially there's a point to be made there and it's something to think about. And it, it does contribute to granting certain perspectives as we read through it that we might not get from other translations. I, I noticed this the last time I read a significant portion of the KJV 
that, that it was granting me new insights just from the way it described things. And so, you know, as long as we understand it's not to be made an idol of, because I've seen a bit of that as well in the, in the same discourse, as a matter of fact, the guy would, uh, basically anytime someone referenced a, a verse in his Facebook group, not using KJV, he would spam it with, uh, the same verse in the KJV. Uh, there was a post asking about the, the wine at the wedding at Cana, you know, was a wine or was a grape juice. Let's have this discussion. He comes on there and says, correction, it wasn't a wedding, but a marriage because the KJV says marriage. So basically picking a fight about a word that wasn't even the point of the post. Yeah. And, yeah. And well, we don't want to be divisive over it, but yeah, it's not something to shrug off entirely either. Yeah. And we've tried to make it clear at GG20 Radio, we're not anti-KJV. Oh, no. Um, you know, it's... And just not only um, because of um, its language and stuff like that, I mean, it's been around for 400 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't say the same thing with the Geneva Bible unless you're like... You know, like people aren't using the Geneva Bible unless they're intentional about using the Geneva Bible. Um, but the K the King James is still a widely used translation, and it's ones that Spurgeon used and all the early Baptists use. And I know a lot of people in like Baptist church history read the King James to help them better understand the Puritans they're reading. Yeah, and and to have a um, better grasp of the language and understand them. So Ricky is listening to the show, and he is an ESV onlyist, um, which is very ESV is cool. Ricky. Um, say, I actually picked up my first ESV on accident at a bookstore. I needed a new Bible. I had an NIV study Bible. I went in, I just bought a Bible. It's like, this looks good. I like to cover. Um, I might have, yeah, it's right here. I got my and, Reformation study Bible. And uh, yeah, it just happens to be ASV. I found God's providence. I found a, a really good translation um, in it. Not to say that those I think MacArthur uses, well, I think they're down the legacy, which is a kind of, I guess, an edited of the NASB. Not quite sure about that. Um, but the NASB, um, you know, New King James, something that has that kind of translation rigor, like trying to have be close in its representation of the original language. Um, because all, all translations make theological interpretations in the words they use. Mm -hmm. And it's finding the ones that try to, um, in one sense, not be so... Um, how do I say it? Um, so translated by kind of interpretation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I, 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 I kind of thought of this when you said, when you clarified that we're not anti KJV, I mean, the, the division that I mentioned before can kind of go both ways. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Uh, what I didn't mention before about this guy in the Facebook group is he was a 19 year old kid. You know, he, he wasn't some uh, 50 year old fuddy duddy hotshot who, you know, was thumping his KJV Bible. He was a kid. He was still growing in sanctification. He has a lot to learn yet. And, you know, this group just shredded the poor guy. <laughs> uh, I, I think the I think the conversation hit ahead when he like I, I referenced something having to do with a Greek word that he was misinterpreting, and he said, "No, you can read what the KJV says, bro." I'm like, "Well, the Bible was written in Greek. Okay, here's the Strong's Concordance. Here's what the Greek word means." means. <clears throat> and he said, "The Bible was written in English. You can go get a copy at your local bookstore at the as the King James Bible." And next thing you know, people from the group are like screenshotting this and using it as a meme and just like they're they're not taking the high road and they're they're making a public mockery of him. And it, it almost reached a point where it's like their anti KJV onlyism had become an idol to them, just like KJV was an idol to this kid. You know, now they're like, like they're going out of their way to troll him with non KJV verses, which is a complete misuse of scripture. And so. We, we always have to be careful we don't swing too far the other way and act like our identity is somehow in our non-KJV or otherwise in any Bible translation. That's not our identity. Yeah. And we, you know, should be fighting one that's faithful. And I think that's the, that's the key. Yeah. Um, you know, with it, there are a lot of translations out there. Um, but it's finding the finding the one that you like to read I think is important but is also faithful and to have it and and readability is important um, mm -hmm. you know if like if you've never really read old English the KGV is gonna be hard not that you shouldn't maybe try to do it at some time but there's having something more accessible that is also faithful is helpful. And then to, you know, if you decide to every year change what version of the Bible you read for that year, you know, if you do that or, or however you yeah. want to do it, you know, then to try to take on something a little bit more difficult, like the KJV and slow, maybe slow it down and, and to kind of embrace the, what kind of for us, archaic language, um, in it it's still god's word it's faithfully translated and the spirit will still use it um but i think that's like the best translation kind of in the number is, is one that you enjoy reading that is faithful to the text that you can use to study god's word yeah and that's the best translation and it's gonna it's that's why it's kind of subjective um, I, we have an elder in my church he loves the king james I love him as a brother. He is a funny, um, a funny man. He'll, he'll make joke about, about the ESV, how my pastor came, he had to get an ESV, can no longer use the King James, all in joking fun. Um, but that's what it, that's the, the benefit of having kind of lots of translations is you can find one that in, helps you to, study God's word. And that's, that's kind of the important, again, the important part of which one is the best translation. Yeah. Yeah. I totally respect the, the, the KJV 
uh, preferers who who just prefer it on the basis of tradition. They like the old school nature of it. Uh, and they, you know, maybe if they think it's a little bit better than the other ones, if they think it's superior, you know, I, I, I respect that. I think onlyism is a bit much. I mean, it's a lot much. Yeah. And in yeah. most cases, way too much. But the people who think it's superior, I think there's, they, they definitely have points there. And I, I, I definitely wouldn't uh, consider it an issue worth arguing over i think there's things to be learned from it I, and i i personally like to preach from esv because it's easier like you said for the general public to understand these days and it's also easier to read out loud but when i listen i i, I don't mind breaking out the king james or whether it's an audio or uh, i guess re- reading visually is a bit tougher with that vernacular as well but i'll, I'll do a kjv audio bible yeah it's uh you ready for another topic? We'll do one more. Oh, yeah. Go for okay, it. Here we go. We'll put it on the screen. So we got left is sign gifts. Um, does God still use them? Um, communion bar. So should we bar Christians, I guess to put it, from the communion table? How does that work? Women preachers, baby dedication, as my wife would say. Guys, I was telling her this, a dry baptism. Um and then also worship instruments. Should we, do we really need the drums? I think is how I tag that one. So here we go. So we're gonna do it in the worship wars. Um, now I said drums kind of in the caveat, it's not necessarily drums. Um, and kind of the preface this debate with others is should it be a piano organ or is it okay to kind of have like what we would maybe associate more with a um, rock um, sorry I just read my wife's comment I'll post it on or do like kind of more of a rock concert with like drums and guitars and keyboards um, so what made me laugh is about the wheel here. My wife put on, wow, really <laughs> living up to God's sovereignty via the wheel, huh? No umen or thumen available. I don't have some, um, uh, umen or thumen, um, readily available, nor do I have, um, sticks to cast lots with. So we're just kind of <laughs> doing what I, what we have. Um, right now, but yeah, so kind of the worship war right in it. Is it piano organ only? Maybe like a Peter Masters would say there in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, or is it okay to have guitars and keyboards and drums on the the stage or up front, which is kind of more modern, uh, a modern expression of it so nate you can take this one okay well our our listeners (laughs) i play piano for my church so i'm obviously not uh acapella only and i mean i i like to i i have to obviously uh make sure everyone can follow along and sing well 
but I, I like to be expressive with it. Like it is well with my soul that uh, that final verse. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm going down low on the piano and I'm pounding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the same way that I, if I was singing it, I would, uh, you know, I'd put a lot of gusto into singing it. And so I think I think music can express the meaning of what we're singing very well. I mean, any anybody who does art in any capacity will tell you, you know, it's a nonverbal channel of expression. But obviously there's a ditch. It seems like all these issues are just surrounded by, by all kinds of ditches. And having been to charismatic churches that uh, do the drums and everything, I don't have anything intrinsically against drums. I think that they could be used properly, but I tend to notice a pattern of once you move into electric guitars and drums and big loud speakers, you're not stopping there. You're, you also got disco lights. You got uh, a, a surround like theater screen where you can project the lyrics, which again, I'm not against projecting lyrics, but you, you have backgrounds with uh, nature scenes or God forbid, crucifixes, um, whatever can make the audience feel the most cathartic. And now we're just basically Christianizing a worldly concept, which is catharsis. The, the dopamine rush that we get from jumping up and down in a dark room. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same concept as a nightclub, except, you know, you've removed the smut from it but you're still getting the same dopamine rush. And so in other words, the, the source is the same. You're just applying it to a different thing. You know, in, in one world, you're applying it towards your carnal passions and lusts. In another world, you're applying it toward your spiritual beliefs. And who knows if those spiritual beliefs are even in the right place. If you believe in the real gospel of Christ, or if you believe in this charismatic, feel-good fluffy Jesus that they've made him out to be. I, I know that came off extremely harsh and I'm not by any means trying to dunk on our reformed charismatic brothers and sisters. I think they have some errors, but I, I'm not trying to insinuate that anyone who worships like that is not saved. I'm just saying the mega church culture, which I have personally stepped into, uh, I, I know that, there's something wrong there because you can tell there's more tangible expressions in the room than spiritual expressions. Whereas when you have a little church with a simple piano or even a cappella, I've been in churches that did that as well. And you can tell everyone is just as much worshiping there as in a church that has a few more instruments or maybe uh, a little bit more physical animation. So, I think it's just an issue that needs strong caution and we have to watch out for potential slippery slopes. Yeah. I think that's something to think about. Um, I don't know if you know, a lot of people know this. One of my favorite worship song is listen to the rhythm, the rhythm. I got comfort of Jesus. And you used to say that over and over for 45 minutes or so. And, um, Obviously, it's a joke there. It's a, a song. You can pull it online. You can listen to it. It's like 10 minutes long. I've never quite made it all the way through. 
Um, but like you said, so it's used at, I think it's IHOP who's using it. So the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, Missouri. I think they're on the Missouri side. In Kansas City. And um, there is, and Justin Peters has mentioned it, others have too, is the type of music they use to get you in kind of a hypnotic state. Oh, yeah. Um, that's a bad example. Um, I think the instrument question, and why I think a lot of people balk is because you, like you said, it's almost like you're coming into a, a concert or a nightclub. The lights are dim, all the bright lights up front, the screens with the lyrics. Um, so I think there's like two aspects of this question. And the one is, are the instruments themselves not worthy to be used for worship and how do we employ those instruments in worship and i think a lot of times is i don't think drums are necessarily bad right especially when you think about drums for the most part even in rock bands is there to kind of keep a beat to keep right. everyone together similar with the the bass I know a drummer, he drums for a hardcore Christian band and I talked to him once about it and he, and he likes that style, but he would never do it in church. Exactly. You know, that's not the time. That's not the place you want something that brings out what music should bring out kind of this. Mm -hmm devotion kind of stir up the emotions as we prepare to listen to god speak kind of that preparation from entering from the weariness of life and moving us to now we get to hear god speak and to to clear our minds for a bit of the world around us so that we can focus as a church together on god's word yeah um the use of and so I think there's freedom in there and that you can have guitars and drums and bass, piano, organ, whatever your church feels is right to worship. But are we using them in a way that will foster worship? Is it so loud? I can't hear myself think nor hear the person next to me who's supposed to sing spiritual songs to me um, here. Can I hear them? Am I receiving that benefit? I think that's when you you notice the difference between is this for kind of worship or are we really trying to um, mimic the world and how we're doing our our songs and our sets? And I think yeah. that's the question. God's not a God of confusion. Right. And I think sometimes when you get to the mega churches and you you see this, it can cause kind of confusion. Um, I don't remember the sermon. I mean, it might have even been a uh, um, Q&A session. But R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, once said that churches – was it? Um, people don't want to go to a place with third-rate musicians singing third-rate songs in a third-rate venue when they could go see something better the night before. Kind yeah. of paraphrase like that. Like that, that pointedness. And I think – worship now 
when we kind of think about what the point of worship is, how we can use instruments in that um, changes the dynamics of which how we worship. And, you know, to think seriously about the commands, how am I to admonish, admonish those around me with hymns, songs, and spiritual songs? And obviously not part of this is you whole like not discussing you should be psalms only or hymns or kind of whatever that means but just kind of having whatever you use for worship and i think this transitions also in the, the mission field should be used in a way to bring god glory mm -hmm. and i feel like the pushback on having drums and stuff like that is can be a slippery slope into what looks like the world and diminishing um, kind of preparing our hearts for worship. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I think you nailed it. Uh, especially the preparing our hearts for worship bit. And uh, I'm also glad you brought up the, the distinction between worship music and uh, uh, your, like your drummer friend. Personally, I love me some Larry Norman, uh, the rock that doesn't roll has been my jam lately. Uh, I, I went to Winter Jam the one year, and I saw Skillet do do their crazy thing. I mean, John Cooper's solid, um, but if you did that in a worship service, it would be strange fire. And I never meant, once again, to clarify, I never meant to say that those types of art are wrong. I mean, to put on a big fancy concert, get some people dancing, having a good time. I mean, if done with a proper attitude that could be regarded as a good gift that comes from above one to be received with Thanksgiving. So there's nothing wrong with having a good time, but when we're in church, what is, what is the Sabbath? It's the day of rest. We come to church to rest from the cares of the world. And so if we think that we're going to sing a song while jumping up and down, shouting at the top of our lungs, and then we're going to, close out the song, sit down, our heartbeats are still going 100 miles an hour, and then we're going to sit quietly and listen to a serious sermon. I mean, I think <laughs> I think we're fooling ourselves. The two don't really go together. Which I, I know, I know I'm know, i straying off topic again uh, when it comes to the actual instruments. Um, I, think, I think it could be helpful even in my church if we just got some uh, bongos or something, maybe for the newer hymns that people are less familiar with, just to keep them on the beat. So they don't lag. And so some of the newer contemporary worship songs are a bit harder to introduce to congregations, uh, which is why I personally prefer the older hymns. But uh, I, I appreciate the, the contemporary ones that my church will occasionally introduce. And it would just help for the sake of practicality, which would then make it easier for them to worship because now they can focus more on what they're singing and on, on glorifying God with their mouths than on trying to follow along musically, you know, cause that's not everybody's gift. So I, I think really, I mean, it's, it, it's less about the instrument and more about the purpose for which it's used and the attitude. Yeah. And I think that's, that's um, the big key. Now we've done shows on is like PowerPoint killing hymnals. Or, you know, should you use hymnals? Um, Not in my church, it isn't. Um, yeah, and we keep our hymnals in the pews. A lot of it is for copyright. We can say, hey, this hymn's at this page. And now you you have, for copyright reasons, it's in front of them. It's there. Um, um, not really that you have copyright issues because we don't 
broadcasts outside and that whole thing. But um, right. Uh, but yeah, I think that is kind of the times I think you feel. Um, you know, we put projectors at our church, and we had a member. He's our piano player. Was kind of like thinking, like, "Oh, is something gonna change?" And we told him, "Was like, no, we're just gonna, we're still gonna do the same thing we've always done. We just, we do want to introduce new hymns that are not in the hymnals, songs from like the Gettys or Matt Merker or um, um, I think we we sent some stuff from City of Light and some. Oh yeah, newer, we just introduced a few of those to our church." great some newer hymn writers songwriters worship writers that are bringing some really good theological content into music and and that was the reason kind of the primary reason kind of push for projectors because um we did have one of the old school projectors the light shines up you have the transparency and because of the distance, you know, it was like really small here and really big up here. And yeah, you know, it just never looked good. No, no way you do it. Um, and again, it's, it's about thinking through what is worship and how do we, um, go about in our context to bring people together to worship and which will be different than churches in Africa or churches in China mm -hmm. or in uh, France or Saudi Arabia, wherever it may be, because they don't have the same instruments we have and they don't have to look the same as we do. Mm -hmm. um, but how, what, how we think about this subject and when it's placed in different cultures, different eras of time, can we consistently be the same? And I think that's the question when we think about drums and guitars or cartoons or cellos or basses or whatever it may be is, is this, can this instrument be used in a way to help the congregation kind of start emotionally preparing for the the climax the climax of this of the service which yeah. is the preaching of god's word and if your church does it the celebration of the lord's supper um afterwards and having that understanding that progression and to think through it and sometimes it might be a stand-up piano playing what would be kind of considered what might the one who leads my our worship would say country style and kind of that very uh um treble bass back and forth um characterized of kind of at the um independent fundamental baptist churches but it's not wrong style yeah and how that church is that how the church wants to worship that's what they can do but there also needs to be freedom to allow people to worship in a way that will glorify god um with it i mean and this is yeah a modern controversy but this isn't a controversy that hasn't been even discussed within um the baptist circle originally was should you have instruments or not right and should you have one person sing or congregational singing or you know and 
early Baptist theologians are discussing these things. So obviously the worship wars, as we like to call them, is not new. It just has a new face, maybe has a new dimension, but it's not in, in one sense new. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think two of uh, a church that my church will occasionally do uh, joint services with. It, we, we used to do it uh, every 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 month that had a fifth Sunday, we would uh, do a joint service with their church. And then 2020 kind of put that on hold. So we're still figuring it out. But it's a mostly black church. And so they do the the style of it's a little bit more animated. There's hand clapping and uh, someone will, someone who's a little bit more musically ambitious will occasionally throw in uh, a hallelujah or a, a little something extra lyrically. You know what I mean? I'm sure there's a musical term for it. That's eluding me, but it's, it's improvisation. <laughs> They'll get a little improv. You see right. uh, Tom Coughlin does it a lot. If you listen to the sovereign grace, um, yeah, CDs from t- um, together for the gospel. He'll just kind of kind of go off, um, yeah, in that way, kind of a jazz improvisation. Yeah, and I I actually like that because even during worship service, I like that because that's organic. I, I think it's in every way right to rejoice in in worship service. I'm not saying everything has to be super dull or quiet. I I think there can be a place to make a little bit of noise if it comes from a place of worship, but that's, that's the order it has to be in, you know, worship produces rejoicing problem with mega churches and uh, the charismatic format is they try to produce noise so that the noise can lead to worship. We got to get our drums. We got to get our lights. We got to get, all the tangible aspects just right so that we can produce worship out of these things. And that's completely wrong order. Yeah. And that doesn't mean you have to do it bad either. You know, so you said yeah. you, you worked on the sound. I'm the sound guy at my church. Um, you know, there's a, a craft to learn how to make singers sound good. Oh, and- well, I don't do that. I, I record for sermon audio. Okay, I do that I, too. Yeah, we don't we don't really use the sound that much for our music. So we don't. Yeah, most like, mostly it's just special music, which in our case are actually special. We don't do it very often, and um, and I've done some other running the soundboard. It's kind of a praise band as it is. And there's there's good, there's ways to do it good and ways to do it bad. Um, one of the best ways is a, it's now a defunct blog was called Undistracted. And it was a guy from um, Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland, um, describing how they set up worship and how they think through these things. Um, so they would have the praise band. They'd probably have the lights off and, the, and they have the big screens. They're a bigger church. Um, but one thing that always stuck with me in his writings was this constant idea that the music should be undistracting. It shouldn't, yeah. in, in this case, distracting you from what you're there to do is to worship. It shouldn't put up barriers. Um, I think it, goes to with using slideshows 
mm-hmm. you know, making sure it works on time and you have the person who knows what they're doing. Um, I don't always get it right. I mean, I'm yeah, trying no. to watch the soundboard and I'm doing the slides and recording at the done. same time. <laughs> you know, I'm a one man show. Um, we don't live stream, thankfully. That would just be disastrous. We got a separate um, group for that. <laughs> um, but just that that mentality. How do I present slides that are undistracting? Like um, when it comes to communion, when the our in between the final the end of the sermon or the final song and the beginning of communion, I I put on a black screen. We have a quote that we like to that my pastor puts up related um, to think about during communion, but during that time it's black, right? And to to bring that focus, we're coming to the Lord's table. We're coming to celebrate uh, the new covenant made by His blood in preparation for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and just having that. Um, that time there um, to sit and then the piano starts to play and I'll switch the slide to have this quote to kind of help dwell and to think about even in connection with the sermon. Again, it's that, that undistractedness. And I think music can do it. And music is very powerful. I mean, yeah. um, Arianism in the fourth century was very popular because of the music Arius was sharing. It was catchy. It was good. Music is great teachers. And, you know, to then be, to try to harness that power for the worship of God um, is really the trick. Whether, no matter what instrument you use, no matter how much God has warned us about the devil's snare. Yeah. I think, again, the, the general pattern to follow is the worship of God should produce the music, not the other way around. So, As a matter of principle, I know practically you got to you got to lead with the piano and stuff. But, you know, when you when you think about it, I mean, everyone is going to sing and worship differently and they're going to express their emotions towards God differently. Some people raise their hands. Uh, some people do their own little like hand gestures as they worship. And it's just to themselves. Some people just stand there and it all comes from their heart and not one is above another. So if you're putting on a concert and you're expecting everybody to jump up and down and go with the motions and you're banging on the the drums and blowing out everybody's ears, you're basically dominating how that person worships. You're saying everybody has to worship the same. Everyone has to go with the same beat. Yeah. And it it strips worship of what it really is, which is from the heart. It's, God is not watching uh, the the disco ball to make sure the colors are right. Uh, my, my grandpa used to say, our Heavenly Father's not deaf. <laughs> Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Yeah. So... I think that's for that topic. So we did how many, four topics, three topics, three topics. Wow. I remember. I'll have to check. But we've gone almost an hour and a half now. 
Um, so we will end it there. We'll save these topics for another edition of Coffee Talks Roundtable, which is real. Which I noticed in the beginning of the show with my image, it says Coffee Table. So, yeah. Kind of not on purpose. That was complete. I wonder. <laughs> um, um, I was also expecting more people, so that would have covered it up. Yeah. Um, but thanks, Nate, for uh, coming on the show. Um, and <clears throat> um, and discussing these things for us. And in a way, I didn't mention it, but that is civil and to consider it. Um, and all that is as Christians, we should act to one another on differing beliefs with it. And I think we are planning on doing more of these. I don't know. We haven't planned out the next one yet, but we'll try to get more um, people involved. If you want to be on it, just um, like us on Facebook and watch for when Ricky kind of puts out the post or um, to get involved. That's how the, the group who was selected and some who were not able to come and Nate um responded for this one. And so look for that. I think next, um, I believe next week we have a rescheduled Deuteronomy or yeah, with Deuteronomy who is, um, and his ministry at, um, on Facebook and a little bit of what he's doing. He's a pastor here in Kentucky. I don't remember where, but we'll have him on and have a discussion um, with him about that. And so you can join us on that for next week, if that is the actual show, um, at 9 p.m. Eastern on Facebook and YouTube. And if it's not the show, we'll still be live tomorrow at next Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern with the, with the show. If you want to catch other episodes, you can um, see the streams on Facebook and YouTube, but we also have provided audio on Podbean. So you go to podbean.com forward slash G220 radio, and you can catch all of our back episodes and even episodes that, um, that are not on YouTube from before the YouTube days of G220 radio. And so for our guest Nate and for Ricky, who couldn't be with us, I am Mike Miller. Thanks for listening to us, and we'll catch you next week on G220 Radio.